We've had two heavily promoted current affairs programs in recent days, each with high-profile presenters, and one was on TVNZ's Sunday program, where John Campbell, in his new role, national correspondent, revealed some disturbing stuff about Gloria Vale. And this is verbatim. Husbands and wives do not have the right to withhold themselves sexually from one another. Did you understand you could say no? No, we were taught we could never say no. All right, that's a little bit of what John Campbell was doing in this disturbing stuff, and I think it, it re- revolves around some kind of pledge. So what he's referring to, what he's reading out, is a statement of belief that Gloria Vale members are expected to abide by, including that teaching on marriage that husbands and wives, it says, can never say no to sex. And the last voice that you heard in that clip was actually Victory Disciple, who left Gloria Vale last year, along with her husband, Hopeful Disciple, and their seven children. And they went on to say in the documentary that, you know, though the statement of belief mentions husbands, all the teaching in the sect is aimed at applying that command to women. So what, women don't have the right to say no if the husband wants to have sex? That's that's essentially the central allegation of the story. That's Mm. what John Campbell has uncovered. And look, look, when I when I first heard about this story, I was kind of like, Whew, you know, another another thing about how Gloria Vale might be bad. You know, it's it's a religious sect founded by a convicted sex offender. It's been heavily scrutinized over the years. I didn't know if there would be too much more in saying that look, it might be bad. That much has been pretty clear. But actually, Mia Culpa, I was wrong. This is genuinely new. It's genuinely disturbing. And it kind of makes that case pretty compellingly, right? That the coercion is there, but it's secondhand. It's through uh, the apparent words of an almighty omniscient being and his will, when really it is the will of just some guy. Uh, So, I mean, Campbell describes it online as grotesquely self-serving rationalization of a comb over oligarchy heavily disguised with scripture. So yeah, pretty, pretty apt, pretty poetic. Uh, But the, the real effective stuff came on camera from, from those people that used to be in Gloria Vale. Uh, So this is hopeful disciple, Victory Disciple's husband, uh, owning up to at least hurting his wife due to his understanding of those teachings, that statement of belief. So here's his admission. I really cared for her. And yet the mindset that I'd grown up with meant for the first eight years of our marriage, I hurt her more than anyone else. And that's what I want to get across to the people in Gloryvale, that the husbands in Gloryvale, they can be hurting their wives without even realising it. Now, TVNZ's run other stuff about Gloria Vale. In fact, if I remember rightly, it was the, the last thing I saw from TVNZ was put Gloria Vale in a quite different light. Yeah, exactly. And this is what I kept coming back to seeing this documentary because TVNZ has hosted a series of documentaries that are a lot more soft focus and have been criticised for being so. So these were these documentaries from from Amanda Evans about the Gloria Vale community and there's been a lot of them in 2016. Gloria Vale, A Woman's Place was TV2's top-rated show and it was criticised for its relatively soft treatment of what's inarguably a place where women have fewer rights than men. And as recently as 2018, it did another series of kind of snapshot episodes on the community 
uh, under the title Gloria Vale, The Return. And these are pretty jarring to listen to now or watch now. And here's, here's a snippet from an episode on the community trying to organize a photo. They're struggling because of all the babies that have been born. They can't fit them into the photo. The population growth so steep that the community's now looking for another property to start up a second settlement as they outgrow the Lake Hopity site. Until then, they'll keep working, praying and having more babies here at Gloria Vale. Yeah, and there's the, the music, the mood music, in a major key. The mood music. Yeah. In a major key, uplifting sound, you know, bouncy voiceover, kind of jaunty tone to it. And that starts to look a lot more jarring when you put mm. it, when you juxtapose it, right, with this kind of revelation from John Campbell and actual journalism, you know. Well, even the number of babies, of the number of babies, Hayden sort of becomes rather dark too. Exactly. It becomes a lot darker when you reflect on the fact that this is a place where apparently, according to the revelations from John Campbell, marital rape is pretty much legitimized. So, You know what? It just reminds me, just to maybe be a little bit, well, another way of looking at TVNZ's differing coverage here. I remember as a young man watching documentaries on Centrepoint, the Burt mm. Potter um, commune, which placed it in a, a kind of slightly wacky but a reasonably positive light all the same. No mention of the horrific abuse that he was carrying on there. And then later on, then the revelation started to come out and the document and the journalism became a lot more serious. Should have been a cautionary tale, really, shouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. If something something smells a little bit, maybe you shouldn't go in with the jaunty music, the uplifting you know, soundtrack and the the voiceover and, and sort of give it this soft treatment. And we really should be a bit more cautious about it and apply some journalistic rigor to it. I can't remember Bert Potter's religion, but I do know that this, the Gloria Vale that you've been talking about, the coverage of Gloria Vale, it's not the only media story current at the moment that looks at Christian statements of belief. Yes, yeah, strangely, right? <laughs> Seems like it's Christian Statement of Belief Week in the media because we've had uh, another kerfuffle over a statement of belief from Tauranga's Bethlehem College. And the school, it, it received state funding, and that's a pretty key fact. Uh, but it's been asking parents to sign off on a statement of belief which contains a paragraph saying, Marriage is an institution created by God in which one man and one woman enter into an exclusive relationship intended for life, and marriage is the only form of partnership approved by God for sexual relations. So that's been criticized uh, as discriminatory by LGBTQ advocates and Tauranga. The schools defended it, saying, look, it's just us saying what we believe. You don't have to believe it. Look, uh, the journalist David Farrier, he writes the Webworm blog. He's a former head boy, actually, at Bethlehem College. And he's really? been pretty public. Yeah. Yeah. So he's it's kind of an interesting perspective. Uh, so he's he's been pretty publicly skeptical about that statement from the school, noting that actually the parents were asked to read and tick every box on that statement, confirming that they, quote, accept each statement. So that sort of sounds like it's not just, oh, this is what we believe. Hope, hopefully you understand, you know. And he's actually gone further than that and found that the statement on marriage was added after the school was integrated as, as, as a public school. So the Ministry of Education agreed on a statement of belief that had 12 points. Later, the school adds a 13th about marriage. And so as a result of that, the Ministry of Education is actually asking Bethlehem College to remove uh, that uh, added statement, that added statement about marriage from its uh, statement of belief. 
Well, that's a, a bit of an example of where journalism can make a difference, you could argue. Yeah, and I'm not exactly comparing <laughs> what's happening at Bethlehem College to uh, Gloria Vale or anything like that, but I just wanted to highlight it just because some of the same themes emerge and that this is a religious document that, that governs people's lives and in some cases forces them to suppress their true selves or to augment what they would ordinarily believe or do in response to, I guess, a religious command. So, you mean, it, it, the thing with David Ferry, the reason I wanted to highlight him is, is because he was at Bethlehem as a head boy, but also questioning his sexuality at the school. And that made him miserable and feel like he wasn't accepted. And we had a recent actual thing that happened at Bethlehem College where uh, students were protesting in support of the LGBTQ community and they were confronted by other students at the school who allegedly subjected them to a chant of kill the gays. So I just wanted to say this is a, probably a reason why I kind of think the journalistic convention on not reporting on people's religions and particularly politicians, I, I'm really weary of it. And it's because these beliefs aren't just some walled off personal part of, of a person's life. They don't go into a room and pray and be religious and then come out and they're not anymore. You know, they're meant to be the governing force in your life. They govern how you act and they govern what you believe. And when I grew up in the church, God was always meant to be number one before politics and uh, before your job or anything like that. And so I, I kind of think I, it, Bethlehem College is a bit of a cautionary tale. You don't have to be in Gloria Vale. You don't have to be in a West Coast religious sect to be imparted with beliefs that override everything else in your life. And you can go to a pretty mainstream evangelical church and end up with, for example, the idea that homosexuality is an affront to God or on the other side of the coin, that you're not okay if you're gay or that you're otherwise different to what these institutions consider acceptable. And look, uh, you often see that in politicians' votes. You know, we have religious politicians who will always vote certain ways on conscience issues. And why is that? Are we meant to ignore the role of faith? Are we meant to just not ask how these fundamental beliefs shape people's decisions? I think, you know, we, we, we should be applying a bit more um, of a journalistic lens to religion and its role in shaping public policy and people's lives. Okay, Hayden, we go from God to grog. <laughs> and Patty Gower... <laughs> Patty Gow on the booze. And we actually replayed That's a bit right. of the interview he did about his program with Tessie Mulligan yesterday on Late Edition last night. And I remember thinking at the time, I thought, well, Guy and Espiner did a similar thing. And I actually interviewed Guy about it back whenever he did it, which I think was last year. That's right. That's right. Uh, Guy did another one called Proof. Now, both, they both kind of centered themselves in their own alcohol journey in this, and that's been kind of a criticism of Patrick Gower, that sometimes he centers himself a little bit too much. Sometimes that doesn't work. I thought in, in his show On Hate, it was kind of weird because he was talking about, you know, he's angsting over how he interviewed a couple of white nationalists when, you know, some of the people in his documentary had been the subject of deadly violence. Uh, you know, in this case, it kind of works because he really does have personal... Uh, he's personally impacted by the subject matter uh, in, in quite a major way. So Guy and Espiner's documentary, it's kind of a lot more uplifting in a way. Guy, and, he, he stopped drinking two years ago and Proof has all these shots of him, you know, puffing and running around a park looking pretty fit. Uh, 
and on booze, I mean, Patrick Gale looks like he honestly couldn't run around a block in some ways, you know, it, with no offense to go. And I kind of enjoyed Gower's look at the topic a little bit more, if only because it really showed like some of the crappy realities of problem drinking in the flesh rather than just through sort of embarrassing retold stories. So uh, I'll give you an example. This is Patrick Gower pathetically stumbling, stumbling about a student party in Wellington after getting too drunk during a shoot. Is there anyone you wrote who doesn't drink? Because look, when I was doing this, no, there, no, there, there did not exist. Well, I think there's more knowledge now about the effects on your mental health and everything. Really? Come on! <laughs> oh, gosh. Right. Okay, that's gonzo journalism in my book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite, it's, I mean, credit to him here. The stuff he shows, it's not exactly charming. It's not flattering. It's honestly hard to watch. I kind of was like squirming as I tried to watch that one. I mean, was he, and, was, I mean, he was he kind of getting drunk but for the cameras almost? Or do you think this was Gow, this is the Gow you should come across at a student party if he ended up at a student party? He's getting a bit old for student uh, parties, isn't he? I I wouldn't be able to say. It seems like a bit of column A, a bit of column B. Like there is kind of a bit of gonzo journalism in it, as you say. But there, he was actually kind of coming off a reasonably heavy conversation with one of his friends, where he had sort of admitted to having a problem with drinking. And so I, I'll play a clip of that actually now. This is him having a conversation with Corin Dan, actually RNZ's host of Morning Report. Well, I can't only really have a conversation if you, you don't want to give up, you don't want to cut back. Well, of course I want to cut back. Of course I want to give up. But, but, but being honest, I just can't. I'm trying to stage an intervention on myself and I can't do it. Yeah, you are. Right, Corin and Patty. Criticism. If I'm doing a criticism, look, this is a focus, this is a documentary that's really focused on, you know, a it's a white man with pretty substantial privilege. He's able to do his job. He he might have missed a few appointments, but actually he has a reasonably decent life. And I mean, it doesn't show some of the more desperate stuff that's associated with problem drinking and how it affects people's lives, you know, the domestic violence, the lost jobs, the economic ruin. And, and it's all about Patrick in a way, not the effect on his family, which is another part of this, you know, problem drinking, uh, what happens, who's really affected by it. But I think it works Still, because, I mean, that, that kind of conversation with Corin Dan is really valuable to have. And we don't often have media, people in the media, actually being quite frank and quite vulnerable and actually kind of shaming themselves in some way. And this, uh, and it ends, I think, in a, in, a, in a good place as well, where it's not just all or nothing. You know, Gower, spoiler alert, he does give up the booze for a bit. He loses seven Ks. Uh, but he doesn't end with a call to alcohol abstinence or anything. Uh, you know, he sort of suggests a few legislative changes that could happen. But there's no tying up of loose ends, and it's a messy topic. And I, I, I kind of like that the documentary uh, reflects the messiness of the topic and the nuance of it in that way. Hayden, we've got around about three minutes left to discuss media coverage mm. of the minor cabinet reshuffle. Yeah, we probably don't have time to get into everything I was going to say here. I, I'd note, you know, good luck to Trevor Mallard in Ireland, but the big news is that Chris Farpoy stepping down as Minister of Broadcasting. We've got a new Broadcasting Minister in Willie Jackson. And this is quite a big change. We've gone from someone who's who's known as a bit of a conciliatory presence who can work with everyone to someone who's been quite abrasive over the years. You know, Willie Jackson has had 
BSA complaints upheld against them, including one made by Mihingarangi Forbes and Animal Lee Mather in 2016. He quite famously prompted criticism after he carried out an interview with uh, a girl identified as Amy on Radio Live who said she knew people who had been sexually assaulted by the Roastbusters group. And Jackson and his co-host, John Tamahedi, asked her what her friend was wearing, how much she had to drink, when she'd lost her virginity, that kind of stuff. It was, um, yeah, a pretty... A bit awful. yuck. Yeah, it was yuck. And, I mean, he's had an antagonistic relationship with RNZ as well, including a pretty highly public public blow-up when his network Wati and News was dropped as the station's Māori news provider. So that's just all pretty interesting context for a new minister that's going into a pretty fraught environment, you know, overseeing the merger of TVNZ and RNZ. You know, he's overseeing an ongoing review of the Māori media sector, uh, and he's also administering this $55 million public interest journalism fund. So that's a lot of stuff. Have we got time to talk about Poda Williams? You've got about one yeah. minute. <laughs> Not really, except for to say that she was, uh, I was going to talk about how she was kind of done by what we call the media narrative around crime. And one thing to note about the media narrative around crime is that it doesn't always reflect the actual reality of crime. That's something that I was going to call on our media to maybe be a little bit mindful of in its coverage. Not an easy solution, you know, gang shootings, ram raids, all very newsworthy stuff. But I checked the. I actually checked the crime stats. I've gone down violent crime over the last year, so maybe the soft on crime narrative around Porter Williams wasn't actually <laughs> based necessarily in uh, reality when it comes to actual violent crime rates overall. 